Today I'm going to read you Chapter 3 from the Young Reader's Edition of The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen. So this is Chapter 3, All in the Family, The Genealogy of Elements. This is starting on page 36. Reading the periodic table across each row reveals a lot about the elements, but that's only part of the story and not even the best part. Elements in the same vertical column, called groups, are actually far more closely related to one another than elements in the same horizontal row, called periods. People are used to reading from left to right, or right to left, in virtually every human language, but reading the periodic table up and down, column by column, as in some forms of Japanese, is often more useful. You can discover some interesting relationships among elements, including some rivalries. The periodic table has its own grammar, and reading between its lines reveals whole new stories. The same, but different. Elements in the same vertical group, column, are sometimes called a family since they are often very much alike. For example, both carbon and silicon have the same number of electrons missing from their outer level, which means they behave similarly in their interactions with other elements. Because carbon is the element most closely linked to forming life on Earth, silicon's ability to act like carbon has made it the dream of generations of science fiction fans interested in alternative, that is alien, modes of life. At the same time, while carbon and silicon are indeed closely related, they are still distinct elements that form distinct compounds. Directly underneath silicon on the periodic table, we find germanium, element 32. One element down from germanium, we unexpectedly find tin, element 50. One space below that is lead, element 82. Moving straight down the periodic table then, we pass from the non-metal carbon, the element responsible for life, to the metalloids silicon and germanium, elements responsible for modern electronics, to tin, a dull gray metal used to can corn, to poisonous lead, also a metal. Each step is small, but it's a good reminder that while an element may be similar to the one below it, Many small changes add up to big differences. One example of the same but different nature of silicon and carbon is seen in their dioxides, compounds in which they combine with two oxygen atoms. Breathing in silicon dioxide, the major component of sand and glass, can cause pneumoconiosis, a nasty lung disease. Construction workers who sandblast all day and workers in insulation plants who inhale glass dust often come down with it. And because silicon dioxide, SiO2, is the most common mineral in the Earth's crust, one other group is at risk, people who live in the vicinity of active volcanoes. When volcanoes are the cause, this lung disease is sometimes referred to as Pneumo ultra microscopic silico volcano coniosis, which is one of the longest words in the English language. Our lungs regularly deal with carbon dioxide, CO2, but absorbing its cousin, silicon dioxide, can be fatal. Many dinosaurs might have died this way, 
When a massive asteroid or comet struck the Earth 65 million years ago, it would have sent tons of poisonous SiO2 into the air. Black sheep. Every family has a black sheep, someone the other members of the family have more or less given up on. In Group 14's case, it's germanium, a sorry no-luck element found directly below silicon. We use silicon in computers, in microchips, in cars, and in calculators. Silicon semiconductors sent men to the moon and drive the internet. But if things had gone differently 60 years ago, we might all be talking about germanium, not Silicon Valley, in Northern California today. The modern semiconductor industry began in 1945 at Bell Labs in New Jersey, just miles from where American super inventor Thomas Elva Edison set up his factory 70 years before. William Shockley, an electrical engineer and physicist, was trying to build a small silicon amplifier to replace vacuum tubes in the massive mainframe computers of the time. Those computers took up whole rooms they were so big. Engineers hated vacuum tubes because the long light bulb-like glass shells were fragile and would overheat. Even though they despised them, they needed these tubes because nothing else could amplify electronic signals so that weak signals didn't die and act as one-way gates for electricity so that electrons couldn't flow backward in circuits. You can imagine the potential problems if your sewer pipes flowed both ways. Shockley set out to do to vacuum tubes what Edison's light bulbs had done to candles, and he knew that semiconducting elements were the answer. Only they could achieve the balance needed by letting through electrons to run a circuit, the conductor part, but not so many that the electrons were impossible to control, the semi part. Shockley wasn't a very good engineer, though, and his silicon amplifier never amplified anything. Frustrated after two wasted years, he dumped the task onto two assistants, John Bardeen and Walter Brattain. Bardeen and Bretain soon determined that silicon was too brittle and difficult to purify to work as an amplifier. Plus, they knew that germanium, whose outer electrons sit in a higher energy level than silicons and therefore are more loosely held, conducted electricity more smoothly. Using germanium, Bardeen and Bretain built the world's first solid state, as opposed to vacuum, amplifier in December 1947. They called it the transistor. This should have thrilled Shockley, except he was in Paris that Christmas, making it hard for him to claim he'd contributed to the invention, not to mention the fact that he had used the wrong element. So Shockley set out to steal credit for Bardeen and Bretagne's work. Hurrying back from Paris, Shockley wedged himself back into the transistor picture, often literally. In Bell Labs' publicity photos showing the three men supposedly at work, he's always standing between Bardeen and Bretagne, putting his hands on the equipment, forcing the other two to peer over his shoulders like mere assistants. Those images became the new reality, and the general scientific community gave credit to all three men. Shockley also banished Bardeen to another unrelated lab so that he, Shockley, could develop a second and more commercially friendly generation of germanium transistors. 
Unsurprisingly, Bardeen soon quit Bell Labs. He was so disgusted, in fact, that he gave up semiconductor research. Things turned sour for germanium, too. By 1954, the transistor industry was massive, but throughout the boom, engineers really wanted silicon and not germanium. Why? Well, in addition to conducting electricity so well, GE, germanium, generated unwanted heat, causing germanium transistors to break at high temperatures. More important, silicon was dirt cheap. In fact, as the main component of sand, it basically was dirt. Scientists were still faithful to germanium, but they were spending an awful lot of time thinking about silicon. Luckily for Bardeen, his part of the story ended happily, if clumsily. His work with germanium semiconductors proved so important that he, Bretain, and Cy Shockley all won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1956. Bardeen heard the news on his radio, by then probably Silicon Run, while frying breakfast one morning. Flustered, he knocked the family's scrambled eggs onto the floor. It was not his last Nobel-related mishap. Days before the prize ceremony in Sweden, he washed his formal white bow tie and vest with some colored laundry and stained them green. By 1958, the transistor industry faced another crisis, and with Bardeen out of the field, the door stood open for another hero. Although he probably had to bend down, he stood six feet six, Jack Kilby soon walked through that door. Though trained in electrical engineering, Kilby was hired by Texas Instruments, TI, to solve a computer hardware problem known as the tyranny of numbers. Basically, though cheap silicon transistors worked okay, fancy computer circuits required lots of them. That meant companies like TI had to employ whole armies of low-paid, mostly female technicians who crouched over microscopes all day, swearing and sweating in hazmat suits as they soldered silicon bits together. In addition to being expensive, this process was inefficient. In every circuit, one of those frail wires inevitably broke or came loose, and the whole circuit died. Yet engineers couldn't get around the need for so many transistors. When Kilby arrived at TI, his bosses gave him free time to work on a new idea he called an integrated circuit. Silicon transistors weren't the only parts of a circuit that had to be hand-wired. Carbon resistors and porcelain capacitors also had to be joined together with copper wire. Kilby scrapped that separate element setup and instead carved everything, all the resistors, transistors, and capacitors, from one firm block of semiconductor. It was a smashing idea, the difference between sculpting a statue from one block of marble and carving each limb separately, then trying to fit the statue together with wire. Not trusting the purity of silicon to make the resistors and capacitors, he turned to germanium for his prototype, which is now housed in the Smithsonian Institution. Because the pieces were all made of the same block, no one had to solder them together. The integrated circuit allowed engineers to automate the carving process and make microscopic sets of transistors, the first real computer chips. Kilby never received full credit for his innovation, but computer geeks today still pay Kilby the ultimate engineering tribute. In an industry that measures product cycles in months, chips are still made 50 years later using his basic design, and in 2000 he won a belated Nobel Prize for his integrated circuit. Sadly, though, nothing could save germanium. 
Silicon was too cheap and too available, so it quickly replaced germanium. After germanium did all the work, silicon became the superstar, and germanium was largely forgotten. <laughs>